morning, Old Orchard. Thank you for the invitation and the privilege of being here on this 35th anniversary. I'm so uh, excited as I think about all that God has done here in your midst. I know that South City Church is a church that was planted out of this church. And then together with our church, as well as Memorial Midtown Church, which was just particularized this year, also was planted uh, by Old Orchard. And so your ministry is blessing, not just here in Webster Groves, but all over our city and the region around. And so it's a privilege to be able to be with you today. As Ron mentioned, our text is Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And it's nice being a guest preacher because you can say anything and mess it up. And that's all right, because I'm leaving after the service. And Ron will have to clean it up later. But you'll never be back then. That's true. That's a good point. That text is printed in your liturgy, and as well as there's a pew Bible there in front of you. And just to set the context before I read the text, the theme, I'm calling it, what in the world is the church? What in the world is the church? And now Ephesians 4 comes after the first three chapters of Ephesians lay out an amazing vision of who we are in Christ, an amazing uh, vision of the grace of God and how it has brought us into being, not only individually, but also collectively as the body of Christ. Well, then the second half of Ephesians, beginning with chapter 4 through chapter 6, begins to talk about how we might live individually and collectively as a body. How do we live in light of who God has made us to be by his grace? And so particularly we focus on what it means to be the church, at least what it talks about here in Ephesians 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. Paul begins that chapter saying, as a prisoner for the Lord then, in light of all that I've said, in light of God's grace and blessing to you, live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've received. And then in those next few chapters, he begins to talk about the unity that exists already within the body of Christ and make every effort to keep that unity. But now when we come to verse 7, he says in the midst of unity, you need to know that God has created you with a great diversity. And here he's talking about a diversity of gifts. So we pick up with verse 7. Here now the reading of God's word. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and quoting from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word. Let's open together with the word of prayer. 
Father, we thank you for how your word testifies about itself that it's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would work in us towards those ends in this time that we're together this morning. Father, we confess that we don't even have the power to understand what we read in and of ourselves. And so we need your Holy Spirit to illumine our understanding. But Lord, we don't just want to understand what we read. We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We also want to be doers of the word. And so we're asking that your spirit would fill us with power so that we would leave this place different people than we were when we came in. We don't want what happens here to just stay here. But we want it to be felt in our lives when we leave this place. And so we're asking that and we ask that you do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I was just reflecting and thinking back on 1981. How many of you all were here for the first service? Do you remember that? There's a few. Now, I was just looking back, and what are some things that happened in 1981? Those of you that were around, then you might remember some of these things. I was actually, I turned 14 years old in 1981 and started high school that fall. Gas was $1.25 a gallon. We had the first flight of the space shuttle Columbia. Ronald Reagan became the president. Some of you might remember that 52 American hostages were released from Iran after 444 days being captive there. The highest grossing movie, can you guess what it was? Raiders of the Lost Ark. A woman named Lady Diana Spencer married Charles, the Prince of Wales. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice on the Supreme Court. This term that no one had heard of at the time called Internet was first mentioned back then. And MTV was launched on August the 1st. Those of you that are sports fans, you might remember that the team that won the Super Bowl that year was actually the Oakland Raiders. The team that won the World Series was the Los Angeles Dodgers. They beat the Yankees. The team that won the NBA championship was the Boston Celtics. And the New York Islanders won the Stanley Cup in hockey that year. Now, I was looking lastly at a few songs that were popular back then. Maybe some of you remember these. Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. Nine to Five by Dolly Parton. Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Pat Benatar. Elvira by the Oak Ridge Boys. Celebration by Cool in the Gang. Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. Some of y'all heard of that. Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen. And lastly, actually the number one song that year was Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. And on July the 26th, 1981, we had the launch service for what would become Old Orchard Presbyterian Church. Thanks be to God for what he's done. Now, throughout the Bible, you see it's important to remember and to remember in the right way. Now, I say the right way because oftentimes what you find in the Scriptures is God's people remembering sometimes in the wrong way. And what I mean by that is when, particularly when people come up against adversity, If you remember the Israelites in the wilderness, they always started to yearn for the good old days. They said, oh, wasn't it good when we were back in Egypt? We could eat all the the melons and garlic and fish and all these things that we wanted, except they forget one small detail. They were in slavery when they were in Egypt. And they cried out to God for over 400 years. But because of their present adversity, they began to yearn for the good old days of the past. And so they remembered in a way that was discouraging rather than encouraging. 
But God often calls his people to remember in a way that's encouraging. He calls them to remember who he is. One that transcends all of the circumstances. And it calls us to remember who we are in light of who he is. A great example is in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. How did the Ten Commandments start? You're going to say with number one, obviously. No. That's actually not how they start. The way the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 is the Lord saying, I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you from the land of slavery. And then he gets to the commandments. Now obey me. In light of what I've made, in light of what I've done, in light of who I've called you to be by my grace. It's not obey me and then I'll save you. It's I have saved you. And now you walk in light of that salvation. And so that's the way that we want to remember. We want to remember in a way that encourages. Now, in Matthew 16, there's a great promise that Jesus gives. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And maybe if you've been here over the last 35 years or maybe even not that long, you know that there's many times when it feels like the gates of hell are really going to prevail and like we're not going to make it. But God still has you here. God has preserved you through all the things that you've been through over 35 years. And so you can praise him for that. You can pray, literally, you can praise him for that. Now, it's all right. Brother Johnson, can you help me? You got to talk back to the preacher. Amen. Amen. But how can we look to him to, not only we celebrate what happened in the last 35 but how do we look to see how is he going to build his church through his people in the next 35 and beyond until he comes again? How can we remember in a way that encourages? Well, Ephesians 4 reminds us who we are in helpful ways. And we're just one, going to look at two aspects of that. You all are going to study this much more in depth as you go through your series when you begin that. But I, I just want to look at two things about what in the world the church is. One thing is that we are a community that is gifted by grace. And the other thing is that we are a community that grows by grace. So we're a community that is gifted by grace, and we're a community that grows by grace. So first, a community that's gifted by the grace of God. You pick up in verse 7, and you realize that not only have we been saved by grace, but also we are gifted by grace to serve. Because verse 7, it says to each one of us, grace has been given. As Christ apportioned it. And then what Paul does is he quotes Psalm 68. The psalm that celebrates the triumph of God over his enemies. Except he changes it just a a little bit. As sometimes the New Testament writers would do. He says, when he ascended on high. This is in verse 8. He led captives in his train. And what's different here in the quotation is what comes in the last part. And gave gifts to men. You go back and read Psalm 68. He says there the, cap, the, the, the victorious one received gifts from men. But here, what Paul says is the victorious one distributes. He gives, by his grace, gifts to men. And so he's saying that this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He goes on to describe what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to a, the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens. Why? In order to fill the whole universe. Now, some of you, have you ever read Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible called The Message? 
In Ephesians chapter 1, 22, I love what he says there. Because what the verse says, he says there in his translation, is the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. What God is doing in his works of the kingdom is located in the very body of Christ. And so oftentimes, don't you feel like, especially maybe in this political climate, don't you feel marginalized and feel like we're just kind of pushed over onto to the side and nobody cares what we do and, and we're not relevant, nobody keeps us in mind? Well, actually, you know, what you're experiencing is that's what it feels like to be a minority. And that's what you're experiencing. But that's not the reality. The reality is that what God is doing in the universe, he is doing through his people, the church. And it says here that he has gifted his people to do exactly what he's called them to do. How is that supposed to work? In verse 11, he says it was he and he lifts five different gifts. It's he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. What does that mean? Apostles were witnesses of the resurrected Christ, and they were specifically commissioned by Jesus to establish his church. He's talking about the 12 disciples and Paul. Prophets are those who received God's message, and, and they recorded it in the pages here in the New Testament. In Ephesians 20, he talks about this foundation of the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So we don't have apostles and prophets in the same way today but we still are building on the foundation that they established. What are evangelists? Those that possess a special ability, a special gift to communicate the gospel. Now, wait a minute. All of us are called to proclaim the gospel, but God has specially gifted some to be able to proclaim it. Pastors, and this is based on the idea of shepherds, modeled after Jesus Christ, the good shepherd that care for the flock of God. And teachers are those that have the ability to break down and present scripture in ways that people can understand and apply to their lives. So how are these gifts supposed to be used? Verse 11, again, or verse 12, excuse me, to prepare God's people for works of service or works of ministry, or some translations say to equip God's people for works of service. That is the job of the pastors, teachers, and the leaders that God has given the church. Their job is not to do all the ministry themselves. Amen, preachers. The job is to equip the saints for the works of service that God has in mind for them. The church is not to be like a football stadium. I've heard some make this analogy that sometimes the church can be like going to a football game where you have 22 exhausted players in the middle of the field and you have 100,000 people in the stands who need exercise watching. That's not what the church is supposed to be. But it's interesting, there's a, there's a translation, I think in the, in the Revised Standard Version and the early King James that translated this verse a little bit differently. And what I mean is this. You see it says to prepare God's people, but some of those other translations would put a comma thereafter. Now how does that affect the verse? Well, to prepare God's people, comma, Four works of service, comma, so that the body of Christ might be built up. What those translations were implying is that it was the leader's job not only to prepare God's people, but also to do the works of service. And so there is this strange, unbiblical distinction between the clergy and the laity. 
Now, the clergy are gifted in a different way, but all of us are ministers. And all of us are called to minister with the gifts God has given us in the places that which, in which God has called us. So we are a community that is gifted by grace. So what can we take away? few things, and I'm preaching to myself now, because some of us try and do it all ourselves. Because there's two extremes, right, that we can follow. We can either try and do it all ourselves, or we can stand by and let everybody else do everything. And you can probably guess which one that many pastors fall into. Not, not the pastor here. I'm, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about Ron. I'll give you an example. When, when I was in Baltimore, uh, we moved here from Baltimore three years ago. We lived in a, in a typical Baltimore row home. And, uh, and at the time, uh, I had a minivan that had the seats that you take out. Do you remember those? And those things were heavy. So if you want to carry something, you, you get somebody to help you, and you t- actually take the seat out of the van. Well, I remember one particular day, we had to put some things in the back of our van. And so I lift up uh, our seat, and I take it out by myself. And our next door neighbors, there's some guys sitting on the steps. We're in a row home, and so they're sitting on the stoops next. And they say, Pastor, can we help you carry this seat out? And I'm straining, sweating, holding it. And, I, and what do I say? No, I got it all myself. And I take the seat in, and I sit it down. And what's the first thing that I say to myself when I put it down? Those guys sit, sat there and let me carry it by myself. They asked me to help. But I said, no, in my pride. Because I didn't want to ask for help. I tried to do it all myself. And so this speaks to us. It speaks to those of you that might be prideful like me. To say that there's no one person that has all the gifts. And so the people around you, you're taking ministry away from them. If you end up doing what God has called them to do. And so on the one hand, this humbles those of us that might be proud. But you know what it also does? Is all, it also lifts up those who might be here and feel like, well, I don't have anything to offer. I don't see how God could use me to do anything of substance. God, God must use the professionals or the people that you see up front. God really has to use them. But no, every believer has been given these gifts of grace. Every one of us needs every one of the others. Every member belongs to all the others, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. And so if you're here today, and you're feeling like, well, I don't know what I have to offer. Well, God does. And he's gifted you to offer that. And there are people in a church that will be blessed if you will come and lay that gift down at his feet and let him use you. There's a glorious picture Ron and I were looking at, and it's in Exodus 35. And that's right before Moses, is, uh, Moses goes to the people to take an offering for the building of the tabernacle. And the people come and they give generously and graciously. In fact, look, picture this. They end up giving so much that Moses has to tell them to stop because it's too much. Because their hearts so wanted to give out of all that God has given them. What a glorious picture of what we can be. How might God use you? I love hearing about the, ministry, the Rock Hill Ministries with Brother Johnson today. 
God may be calling some of you and putting it on some of your hearts to be involved with that. I, I've heard that the Stevens ministry here is one that you participate in as well. Praise God for that. But how might God be willing to use you? You say, well, how do I discover what my spiritual gifts are? I'm glad you asked that. Because I know you talk about that. Actually, there's an, an article that we read uh, by Tim Keller. It's very helpful, and it's free. And it's called uh, Discerning and... Uh, What's it? Discerning. What did I? I forgot it now. Oh, discerning and exercising spiritual gifts. And he talks about looking and seeing where do we have ability and affinity and opportunity to serve. And so you can look that up. It's a helpful thing to help us discover what gifts God has given us. So first thing is that we are a community that is gifted by his grace. But not only that, we're also a community that grows by the grace of God as well. Again, in verse 12, why does God gift these people? So that the body of Christ might be built up. Built up toward what? Verse 13. Until we all reach unity. In what? First, he says, in the faith. And the faith there refers to the content of the gospel. In Jude 3, he says, contend for the faith. What the scriptures tell us about the Christian faith. We need to be built up together. And that is within churches. That is across churches, within denominations, across denominations. There's to be unity in the faith. And not only that, unity also, he says, in the knowledge of the Son of God. And he's not talking there specifically about a seminary degree. And I'm not knocking seminarians, all right? I love y'all. But what he's talking about there is more than just an intellectual knowledge but an experiential and a relational knowledge that we all are to have and that we are to have collectively in Christ. And then he says, so that we will become mature. And literally what that says is become a mature man. Isn't that interesting? He uses a singular noun there. So that we would grow together to become a mature man, one person, the body of Christ. He's saying, in other words, that we mature in our unity together. That's a sign that God is growing us up. And a sign that we are immature is being disunified. As we go on, what he does here, he says the goal is that we might become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Why? And he expresses this both negatively and positively in, in the next couple verses. First, negatively. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants. Now, listen, if you're an infant, there's nothing wrong with being an infant. We have some beautiful infants here. Now, could you imagine if their parents said to them, listen, you're six months old now. We need to have a talk. It's, it's time for you to start pulling your weight around here. This diaper changing stuff, I'm done with that now. And, and, and listen, you're, it's expensive taking care of you. You've got to find a job. Now, maybe it can be part-time, but you've got to pull your weight around here. That would make no sense at all because the child is still an infant. But just imagine if that person was 49 years old like me and you still had to change their diapers and still had to feed them and still had to take care of them. You'd say, well, there must be something wrong because they're not acting like an adult anymore. Well, that's what Paul says, that we all start out as infants. 
no matter what your record is, no matter what your educational level or how much money you make or where you work, when you come to Christ, you start out as an infant that needs to grow and be taught. But we're not supposed to stay there just as physical infants aren't supposed to stay there. What does infancy look like? Well, he says, tossed back and forth by the waves. What waves? Well, he goes on, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. He's saying that when you're an infant, you're particularly susceptible to false teaching, to falling away from the faith. Many of us have heard the statistics of our kids when they go away to college, end up leaving the faith. Why? Because they still left being an infancy and they're swayed by the deceitful scheming and teaching of things around them. Now, what's the danger of this in our own age? Well, just think about some of the things that are going on in our own world now. Think about there's discussion now and, and it's up in the air what a man and a woman is. Think about gender distinction. Well, how will you answer that biblically? Think about the racial divide that still exists in our world. How will you deal with that biblically? What are the temptations for us? One is to assimilation. And that is to just follow along with the way the culture is going. And just say whatever the culture says and not have any distinction from us. Now, let me say this. For us, you say, well, we're in the PCA. We don't have a danger of assimilating. Yes, we do. But you say, how is that? Because we don't follow that liberal stuff. Well, maybe not. But we assimilate on the other side. We assimilate politically with the other side. What should God's people do? Well, we'll get to that in the next part. But what, that's one temptation. But what's the other temptation? Not assimilation, but isolation. And that is to wall ourselves in and stay away from the world around us. And so we have no contact with the people that God has called us to be sold in light with. We're called to be in the world, not of it, but not of the world and not in it. And so that's the negative. But what about the positive? Paul brings that out in verse 15. He says, instead, and there's contrast with what he says in verse 14. Instead of following every wind of teaching, verse 15 says, we will be speaking the truth in love. Literally, he says, truthing. Now, what is the truth that he's referring to here? In the context of the whole book, what he's talking about is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being a people who speak of the gospel and all of its implications, both inside and outside of the church. So instead of following every wind of teaching, we'll speak the truth of the gospel. Instead of following cunning and craftiness, we will speak and live the truth in love. Have you ever seen this commercial? It came out a few years ago of this mother and daughter that were yelling at each other. And they were yelling good things. They're saying, I love you. I respect you. I care about you. And you're like, that betrays the message. The way that you're communicating it. 
They were speaking the truth, but they were yelling at each other. They weren't speaking the truth in love. And so the message was missed. But instead of crafting and cunningness, we speak the truth in love. And instead of being tossed back and forth and blown here and there, what does he say in verse 15? We will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. So he is on the one hand, he's our goal and he's the source of our growth at the very same time. And he's saying we'll move from infancy through childhood and adolescence to full-grown adulthood. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that we will not live in assimilation. It means we'll not bow to our culture, but we will follow what the Word of God says. Okay, how does the Word of God speak to those issues of gender distinction? The Word of God tells us about being made in the image and likeness of God. And so we speak that. That's what our culture longs for, to know the dignity with which we've all been created. Our culture settles for far less than what God has made us to be. What about issues of justice and even issues of politics? What that means is that we can't get in bed with either party because both parties will speak against things that go against the word of God and how we should live. And so the call of God's people has always been to speak prophetically to both parties no matter who's in office, to point back to the word of God. And this is how you treat people. This is what it means to stand for justice. We don't have to make a choice with either preaching the gospel or preaching about social justice. Jesus Christ is the head over every realm. So that means that he has to speak to every realm of our lives. And so the church must be engaged, not in assimilation, but also neither in isolation, where we're walled off from the world around us. I praise God for your work here with other churches in Webster Grove. That's not living in isolation. That's living as we're supposed to, for transformation, to be salt and light in the place that we're in. Have you all seen um, It's a Wonderful Life? Right, every, only 50 times, right? Every Christmas. George Bailey, he seems like a simple character, right? But he got a great gift because he got to see what his life would be like if he had never been born. And when he went back to his hometown, he saw the impact. It wasn't just in his own family, but even the place where he lived had been changed from Bedford Falls to Pottersville. A place of love and peace had become a place of injustice and oppression. What was that saying? That even though he felt like his life wasn't worth much, he was living in such a way to have a difference in the lives of the people around him. And that's the call for the church. That's a picture of what it means to live in salt and light. That's what God has called us to. Verse 16, from him, Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. That means that every part of the body is necessary. Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, 
have to tell you, one, one afternoon I was driving, my son Josh and I were driving up um, Ballast Road. We were leaving the seminary, and we were going to, um, to Raising Cane's. Have you been to Raising Cane's? And so we were driving up there, and we passed by a park. And, and the park on our left is really interesting what we saw is we saw maybe 25, 30 people walking around this lake, except nobody was talking to each other at all. Everybody was looking at their phone like this. Now, some of y'all know, what were they doing? Pokemon. (laughs) Now listen, I'm not trying to hate on Pokemon. But all I'm saying is that's not a model of what it means to be the church. That was just a bunch of individuals who happened to be in the same place at the same time, but had no interaction with each other. The church is called to be a body. And as we grow, it's really interesting the way he talks about maturity here, because he's talking about it collectively. Because we think, how do we measure maturity? Well, I've memorized more Bible verses. I've had so many quiet times in a row. I'm better at this. I know this about... But the way he talks about it is the way that we relate to each other. That's how maturity is measured. So we're a community that not only is gifted by grace, but also one that grows by grace. So, closing, where do we get the power to live this out? Because you're here, and and you might be saying, if you've been here for a while, maybe you've been here 35 years, and you're like, you're just a guest preacher. It's easy for you to stand up here and say that. Because you're going to leave. But you don't know how hard it is. You don't know how much we've suffered. You don't know how hard we've tried. I'm weary. I'm weak. I'm tired. How am I supposed to have the power to keep going on with this table that we're going to come to in in a few moments? It reminds us again and again, doesn't it, where we find the power because it points us back to the one who is our example. Yes, but he's so much more than that. He's also the source, the one who gives us the power and strength to be able to daily do what he has called us to do. How does he do that? Because when we come to that table, we're reminded that for this body to be able to come together, his body had to be torn apart. We're reminded for us to be able to be gifted in grace and be able to grow in grace. It costs something immeasurable. It was bought not with perishable things like gold and silver, but is bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He's the one. He's the one who gives us the power daily to walk together as the body that he has gifted and made us and called us to be. And so let us leave this place. Let us call each other, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And remember where it says he ascended, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he lives to intercede for his people. Let us return to him to be the church in the world that he's called us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for 35 years of Old Orchard. Lord, there's many lives in this room that have been changed, that have been given. There's lives of people around the world that have been impacted by the grace of God at work here. 
And so we celebrate that. But Lord, this is not a retirement party. We celebrate what you've done as we also at the same time look forward to all that you will do. That you will do in the immediate future and you will do down the road. We pray for you to continue to do great works of grace through this church. We pray that you would give peace in place where there's struggle right now. That you would bring healing in places that are broken. But we pray that you would use this glorious body for the work of the kingdom of God. The greatest investment we could ever make. We ask all this in the matchless and powerful name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.